coming up in this episode. You have online um, ISIS recruiters that are spotting. Uh, they're, they're looking for people um, who have questions, who have expressed concerns about whether foreign policy or religious questions, and they're, then they're going after those individuals in a very targeted way. That's Seamus Hughes, a former U.S. government counterterrorism official who actually went out and looked for terrorists online to talk with them, to learn how they do what they do. You know, there's a, a couple handful of, of people that do this as a full-time job looking for um, young men and women uh, and trying to either direct them to attack the homeland or maybe travel to Syria, Iraq, and now increasingly Libya. That's coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by TrueCar. Pricing information is great, but there's more to car buying than just price. There's the actual buying experience. And to enjoy a better one, you have to go to a TrueCar certified dealer. There are more than 11,000 TrueCar certified dealers nationwide. They are there to help you find the car you want, and they are what make TrueCar unique. By choosing TrueCar, you will work directly with a TrueCar certified dealer contact. And you can lock in guaranteed savings off MSRP and enjoy a better buying experience. TrueCar users save an average of $3,279 off MSRP. More than 2 million cars have been sold to TrueCar users by the TrueCar Certified Dealer Network. Using the TrueCar pricing curve will show you what other people in your area paid for the same car you're looking for. Now you know what a fair price is, so you can feel confident. And you can get a guaranteed savings certificate from a TrueCar Certified Dealer. When you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit TrueCar.com or download the TrueCar app to enjoy a better car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Very graphic situation. San Bernardino. An act of terrorism. Paris. An attack on all of humanity. The Islamic State. I'm Barack Obama. They want you to imagine them in the shadows. Hostile nation states. Can inflict mortal damage to the United States. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the program. I'm J.J. Green. Terrorists are really good and getting even better at finding recruits for their exploits online. The U.S. strategy for countering their efforts, frankly, doesn't seem to be working very well. The bottom line is the strategy that's being used needs some work. We'll get into that later. But another part, and perhaps the most important part of the problem, is that today's terrorists are far more savvy at using social media to support its activities than counterterrorism authorities are at using it to disrupt them. On this program, Seamus Hughes, Deputy Director of the Program on Extremism at George Washington University's Center for Cyber and Homeland Security, joins us to talk about the problem and the solutions. Seamus, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Let me just get right away from you, your take, your view, uh, just briefly to set us up on how extremist groups, specifically the Islamic State group, uh, essentially approach using 
social media and uh, using the internet and all of its tools for its marketing and messaging. Yeah, they use social media the same way anybody else would in terms of recruitment. So um, primarily on mainstream sites uh, like Twitter was the platform of choice, but now it's largely on concentrated on Telegram. But they use it in three different ways. Um, the first way is grooming. So we watch individuals of the program on extremism. We watch um, naive individuals being groomed by ISIS spotters online, uh, similar to how you know child predators approach um, internet. And then the other way they use is logistical support. You know, so how does an individual from Chicago figure out how to go to Turkey and cross the border? Well, he gets those numbers through recruiters and people that he finds on Twitter and Telegram. And the last way they use social media is essentially as the devil on the shoulder, what the FBI director termed, right? This idea of egging a person on and saying, so you can't travel to Syria and Iraq. Uh, the very least you can do is commit an attack in the homeland. Uh, and it's, much, it's a very interactive uh, approach. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, but in the U.S., we don't necessarily have communities that radicalize in large numbers. We're talking about individuals. And individuals are looking for like-minded people. And they're finding those like-minded people online. We met not too long ago at a forum where this process, this issue, this problem was discussed. You were one of the panelists presenting that night. One of the things we heard from the group was that there is a very diverse array of people that are susceptible to this terrorist media. Not long after that, I saw a television program regarding three French girls who essentially had been recruited online, slipped away, and joined uh, a, a terrorist organization. That story is not unique, is it? Yeah, and, and that French story is also an American story. Um, you know, two years ago, three young girls from Denver, a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, and a 17-year-old, um, took a, a similar trek. Um, they found uh, instructions online on a Tumblr account of how to travel to, to Turkey and then cross the border. They got on a plane, got all the way up to Frankfurt. Um, their father had called every phone number he could in the Colorado phone book until he found an FBI agent who was able to turn those girls around and send them back to um, Denver. But then, they're again, you're right, you're, you're faced with this reality, right? You have these individuals who've been radicalized to violence, they've made a, a step to join a foreign terrorist organization, and you're left with the reality of what do you do with this? Um, and some people you're going to arrest, and you should use the full tonnage of federal government's efforts. And then some individuals, particularly minors, you're going to have to figure out a different way. And unfortunately, in the U.S. context, and our European partners are, are grappling with this too, we haven't figured that out. Uh, and I'd also note, you're absolutely right in terms of there's not a typical profile of an ISIS recruit. You know, they're old, they're young, they're rich, they're poor, um, they're high school kids in this case, or in, you know, they're college graduates. Um, we've had a, a cases of young as 15 in South Carolina to as old as 47 in um, New York, and, and the spectrum runs from there. Um, so it's very difficult for law enforcement to try to develop a response to this when there's not a method to the madness. Seamus, um, speaking of the madness, you talked about those three tips, uh, specifically those three ways in which the organizations, uh, specifically ISIL, is using Twitter to message, and one of them was grooming. Who is doing the grooming? It's a very systematic approach. Um, you know, we tend to think that ISIS is just this kind of amorphous blog uh, online and they're just, you know, throwing out messaging to see what happens. And there's some truth to that, but there also is, again, a very systematic approach. You have online um, ISIS recruiters that are spotting. Uh, they're, they're looking for people um, who have questions, who have expressed concerns about whether well, foreign policy or religious questions, 
and they're then they're going after those individuals in a very targeted way. Okay, so let me um, let me just let me just jump in really quick before you move on. Yeah. How are they finding these people? Are they using hashtags? I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on on the internet, so I'm I'm not sure they have a, 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 as many people as they would need to scour the entire messaging content to find people. So what are they looking for? Yeah, they're looking for two things, right? They're looking for people that are self-identified. So people that have already said that they're talking about what's happening in Syria and Iraq, or they're talking about how great ISIS is, right? So then at that point, the recruiter will step in and say, if you're so, if you think it's so great, here's how you travel. Uh, or uh, you can't travel right now, and so you should look at uh, homegrown attacks. Um, a lot of these individuals, again, they self-identify as, as recruits. And then sometimes you see a number of ISIS uh, recruiters essentially trolling um, mainstream sites for um, individuals that are naive. You know, I think back to a case we looked at at the program on extremism um, this time last year of a young woman from the Midwest, recent convert to the faith, had questions about her faith, uh, and then asked him to on Twitter. Um, and we saw ISIS recruiters realizing that she was naive, answered the questions on Islam in a very innocuous way, uh, and then once they had built trust with her over a course of a few weeks, then introduced the Islamist ideology into the conversation, this this ISIS narrative in the conversation. Um, they're very methodical in the way they do this. Again, you're not talking about large numbers of people online, of uh, ISIS recruiters. You know, there's a, a couple handful of, of people that do this as a full-time job. It used to be uh, a lot more prevalent when Twitter was more of an easier space for ISIS to operate. It's not that anymore. Um, but you do still see ISIS recruiters, particularly on Telegram, looking for um, young men and women uh, and trying to either direct them to attack the homeland or maybe travel to Syria, Iraq, and now increasingly Libya. Ali Shukri Amin from Northern Virginia was a key uh, example of that, no? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ali is a great um, case study of this. So 17-year-old um, kid, he's on Twitter. He's got 4,000 followers um, talking about how great ISIS is. And he becomes this you know, larger-than-life character online and a key node for the English-language ISIS team. Now, in real life, he's 90 pounds soaking wet, uh, you know, the type of kid you wouldn't um, even look twice at, right? He had his best friend Reza, uh, and him and Reza drove to the airport. He dropped Reza off. Reza continued on and joined ISIS. And Ali Amin um, continued to tweet and, get his, and, and promote ISIS. Uh, he eventually got arrested for material support to terrorism, uh, and was sentenced to 11 years. And he's now spending uh, 11 years in a pretty serious jail down in the south. Yeah, down in North Carolina, the Butner facility, where some of the toughest drug dealers and uh, other types of criminals from around the world are uh, at home there now. So you've been in that world. You've been able to contact people who have been in that world and communicate with them for extended periods of time. I want to ask you about that, but first... Can you give me a sense of how many groomers or people out there, spotters, the Islamic State group might have, considering their numbers? Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I would hesitate to do um, exact numbers. What I would say is there's been an evolution in the way terrorists have used the internet. So uh, in the good old days, about ten years ago, it was password protected forums. It's about a dozen password protected forums. Um, the intelligence community c could collect against it. We had a good sense of who those individuals were. Uh, and it was people that were already primed with the ideology before they went there. Then the advent of social media, kind of explosion of the use of Twitter, 
Uh, and then you, the ability to essentially get the fence sitters um, and answer any questions they had. Now we've they've been largely kicked off of Twitter. They occasionally surge back up after an attack, but they've been largely kicked off Twitter. They're on Telegram, which is much more of a one-to-one type of communication. You have the ability to group chats, but again, the person has to be primed, um, similar to kind of the web, web forums. Um, but you know, I, I've I've had the opportunity to talk to a few individuals, you know, purported foreign fighters online. Um, and their reasons for joining are varied. Um, the earlier cases were they looked at the Assad atrocities and the barrel bombs that you know you and I see on the nightly news and you report about uh, every day, and they were drawn to that um, narrative. Um, but more recent cases, it's been much more of the perceived religious obligation. The idea that you're building this utopian Islamic state is clearly a driver for these individuals, uh, and they're able to justify every. Um, horrible, depraved thing you could possibly think of because they see it in a worldview. Uh, Think of it like an echo chamber, right? So if you're on your Facebook feed and you're only posting links of one news channel, it's going to narrow cast um, so you only get the political bent of that one news channel, right? Uh, That's a similar dynamic online. So you have individuals who self-identify as ISIS supporters and they're not hearing dissenting voices. They're only hearing that echo chamber of these individuals who say, you know, you're absolutely right, continue what you're doing. Um, So it gives this false sense that these individuals are part of something larger than they actually are. Um, Because, you know, you're not really talking about that huge of a number of individuals that are traveling, you know, 30,000 or so foreign fighters, unprecedented really in the modern era, but still a very small number in the general population. So they need to get this perception that there's a huge movement on this, that this is the huge counterculture of the day. We're talking with Seamus Hughes, who's the deputy director at the program uh, on extremism at the George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. And Seamus worked for the National Counterterrorism Center, and he actually was the lead staffer on the U.S. government's efforts to uh, implement uh, a national CVE strategy. And uh, I want to ask you, uh, we talked a bit about about the uh, the grooming business there, and uh, I wanted to get into a little bit more about your, your ability to get into that world uh, and talk to people. Is there a case that stands out to you of someone that you actually communicated with whom you knew was a jihadist or a terrorist, uh, and they knew who you were, um, at least to, to some degree? Is there a case that stands out? You know, I've done I've done a few interviews in my career. Um, so the majority of the time when I was in government was on the front end of prevention, right? So it was this idea of, you know, how do we prevent the next two guys from committing horrible acts? So after the Boston Marathon bombing, the Imam of the Mosque calls me and said, you know, Seamus, two of my guys just did a horrible thing. Can you come talk to my congregation about um, preventing the next two guys from doing this? And those are very difficult conversations, right? You're and talking about radicalization. And let's, uh, and let's be clear. Sorry to interrupt. Let's be clear. These, this was Joe Carr and um, Tamerlan Sarnayev, the guys who planted uh, essentially the devices in the, at the Boston Marathon. This was the imam from their congregation. Right, exactly. And he's trying to grapple with what this means, right? Yeah. Uh, and he's trying to make sure that there's not another two people that do this. Um, so you, do, you, go, you go to Boston— um, you're in a room full of people that are very skeptical about government in general, uh, and you try to have a, a conversation about what this means for prevention. And framing matters on this. So I used to do, when I used to do community engagement, I talked about you know X number of people have attacked uh, the homeland and X number of people have done such and such. And people would politely nod, um, but their eyes would glaze over. When you start talking in a human aspect, right, you start telling stories, 
So I think back to my time in Minneapolis in February 2009, uh, you know, a, a bunch of snow on the ground, um, and I'm going to the Cedar Riverside Towers, um, and I'm meeting with five mothers of children that had joined Al-Shabaab, a terrorist organization in Somalia, uh, and they're telling their story about how their son's been brainwashed. Um, and I think back to the case of Burhan Hassan, a um, 17-year-old kid who joins Al-Shabaab when he's... When he's uh, three years old, he leaves Somalia, spends four years in a refugee camp um, in Kenya, spends his formative years in Minneapolis, and then decides he wants to go join Al-Shabaab and build a better Somalia. He gets over to Somalia, um, realizes that Al-Shabaab has sold him a bill of goods, and calls his, his uncle and says, I want to come home. Once Al-Shabaab realizes he has doubts, they put a bullet in the back of his head, and his family finds out he's killed by looking at Somali news websites. This is the reality of Al-Shabaab. And, that's, right? and that's, that's a very tragic scenario, in part because I recall that situation you're talking about. It happened on election night. Uh, exactly. November 2000. Exactly. Right. His parents. Sorry, go the, ahead. The, the point of the, the story is this, right? At some point in Burhan Hassan's radicalization process, there was a moment where he was reachable. Um, there's a bystander effect in most of these cases, and about 70% of the cases, individuals, loved ones, see something concerning, but don't really know what they're looking at. And they're watching a train wreck happen in slow motion. Um, so when I tell those stories to communities, I'm talking about how do we reach to those individuals? How, do we, how are we able to uh, be able to bring them back into the fold? So Burhan Hassan was at home, his, uh, the, his parents watching the election coverage. He sneaks out of the house that night and heads off, I think, uh, to Kenya and then eventually to Al-Shabaab territory, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, which at that point was in, uh, headed off to some Somalia. Uh, and this is how it was discovered that he was gone. And that, Yeah, and that story plays out time and time again. Um, and I've had some opportunities to interview individuals who have joined um, terrorist organizations or at least attempted to join terrorist organizations. Um, I talked to a, a, a local kid, uh, Zach Chesser, um, who tried to join Al-Shabaab a few years ago, and we traded about 100 pages worth of letters back and forth in prison, because I was always fascinated by his story. Uh, here's a, a kid who rode crew, was a local Virginia kid. I'm, from, I'm a local kid from Maryland. Uh, we had similar kind of trajectory in life. He went towards terrorism. I went towards counterterrorism. Um, so I wanted to figure out what made him tick. Uh, and what he told me was, there was a number of opportunities where people tried to bring him back into the fold, and then he always found his reassurances back online. So if he ever had doubts, he'd go back online, and, and those individuals would say, don't worry about what that imam told you. Don't worry about what your mom told you. Uh, what you're hearing online is real. Yeah. You have some terrific stories to tell, and uh, I thank you for joining us to talk about that. A couple more things before we lock this up. The Islamic State organization blasted on the scene for the general population in 2012, but in reality, they had been underway since the mid-2000s. And I'm wondering, as horrific as what we've seen from the Islamic State organization is now, what you think may be coming in the, in the wings? What may be next? My concern in, in, in what's next is uh, everyone that's learned the lessons from ISIS, um, their mistakes and their successes. And also the fact that, you know, we've had 30,000 foreign fighters and some of them are going to be killed and some of them are, are not. But they're going to come home at some point and they're going to go back to their home countries, um, whether that's in Europe 
or Libya or Somalia or Yemen or any number of the um, dozens uh, of places where um, ISIS recruits have come back to. They're going to have training. Um, they're going to have experiences and they're going to use that. Um, some people are going to move on with their lives. And we saw that after the Bosnian conflict. But some individuals are also going to try to build essentially their own ISIS um, in their home countries. Uh, so we're going to have to monitor this. And I think the problem is, in some ways, the ISIS, um, the ISIS concern and threat is um, good in the fact that it's located in kind of one spot right now the occasional province that announces that they're ISIS, right? But for the most part, you're talking about Syria and Iraq and then a little bit in Libya. Um, when ISIS falls, um, we're going to see a dispersion of, of foreign fighters and people that have learned. And we're going to have to deal with the fact that we're not just focusing on two countries anymore. We're going to be focused on quite a bit, quite a bit more. Uh, and some are going to rise and fall. And that's my real concern. My Also, my other concern is, is just you know, whether we actually have the legal capabilities to handle this influx of returning foreign fighters. Um, are you going to be able to arrest these individuals? And lastly, my, my, my last concern on this is these individuals are going to serve their time and get out, and we have no rehabilitation or rehab program on those individuals. I think back to the ISIS cases in the U.S., 105 people have been arrested for ISIS-related activities in the U.S. The average prison sentence is 11.8 years. They're getting out relatively soon. It's a public policy question uh, of whether someone served their time. What do you do with them afterwards? And it's a, it's a resource question for the FBI. I'd like to end by asking you, what message should the U.S. be sending now to terror organizations and how should they send it? I would, if I was doing counter messaging, at least on the online space, I'd get away from the idea of broad-based messaging. So you don't need a don't do drugs campaign when it comes to ISIS. Um, you're not going to be able to get your target demographic. I would focus on one-on-one -on -one um, targeting and messaging. Um, and you're going to try to pick off the individuals you think you can pick off. And the ones you can't, um, you use military and legal uh, means, the ones that are still true believers. But you're trying to get the individuals who have seeds of doubt. Uh, and then, so that should be the focus on it. There also, you know, there should, needs to be a mixture. We talk a lot about the the ISIS beheadings and, and the horrible things they do, but the vast majority of their, their messaging is actually what they would perceive as positive, right? This idea of building um, a caliphate, you know, electricity in Mosul, candy out to kids in Raqqa. Uh, and we don't do nearly enough on the positive end either. So it needs to be a mix between positive and negative. Uh, and we also need to, just from an operational standpoint, these guys shouldn't be able to sleep easy at night uh, if, if we want to be successful. They need to think that they're constantly under um, a threat of attack. Seamus Hughes, Deputy Director of the Program on Extremism at George Washington University's Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. Thank you for taking some time today to talk with us on Target USA. Thanks for having me. Coming up in our next episode. The beginning of the end is now underway in Iraq. The defining battle to liberate Mosul from the Islamic State group began this week and we'll go to the battlefield for a progress report on what's expected to be an apocalyptic and pivotal battle in the world's quest to destroy the richest and most brutal terror group in history. That's next time. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. You know, if like the rest of the whole world, you're all caught up in the what the... 
expected Donald Tweet Today game, good news. Podcast One's got a few shows that you need to download pronto. There's Breitbart's Milo Yiannopoulos. A weekly discussion of all things technology, media, video games, politics, internet culture, and, of course, the dreaded social justice warriors. Former Clinton White House advisor Dick Morris. Hillary, I worked as her chief advisor for 20 years. I know her, and she should not be president. Weekly Standard editor Bill Kristol. We're fighting a war against radical Islam, but the president of the United States won't call it a war, and he won't mention radical Islam. And all the editors of The Standard get together to do a weekly confab. Welcome to The Confab. I'm Eric Felton. Download Milo, Dick, Bill, and The Confab today on the Podcast One app, or subscribe at podcastone.com.